Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we can gather on this day in remembrance of those who have fed us well and grateful for those who stood firm in the truths of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. And we just pray now you would take our minds and think through them, take my lips and speak through them, take our wills and bend them to your own, and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as I stated in the welcome, we're combining our Reformation Sunday with our All Saints Sunday, given that it's compacted, today being Reformation Day and tomorrow being All Saints Day. And so we're combining these two great days in our tradition, remembering those great saints who have fed us so well. I am so grateful for the ministry of Bishop John Howe of Central Florida and my rector at Truro Church who led me to faith in Jesus Christ simply by preaching the word faithfully. I'm grateful for Martin Minns, who was our first bishop here at St. Barnabas Christ Church, who calls me once a quarter to check in and see how you're doing, how we're doing, and each one of us reaching one person for the kingdom over the next year. I'm thankful for Terry Baxley, who at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, when I couldn't find a faithful church, taught me how to be a faithful Anglican in Presbyterianism. It was amazing. The rectors I worked for, Reed Henserling, Larry Knotts, Carl Neely, who passed away just this past year. For the living saints of my life, Paul House, Tim Keller, John Piper, Dr. D.A. Carson, Ray Ortland, living saints who feed us well today, as well as those heroes, which you hear me mention often, Thomas Cranmer, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, John and Charles Wesley, Charles Simeon, J.C. Ryle, John Stott, and especially this year, Dr. G.I. Packer, who went home to be in the Lord, with the Lord this year. We celebrate the great truths that we have that began with Martin Luther on this day in 1517, nailing the 95 theses to the cathedral church in Wittenberg, Germany, protesting the unbiblical teachings of the church at that time, some which are still held by the church today, even. We have our differences with the official teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. But we in the Anglican Church stand with Luther, Calvin, Thomas Cranmer, who rediscovered the biblical doctrine that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And it's from that faith resulting in a changed life. We are justified when we trust in Christ. In other words, you are saved from sin's penalty. Therefore, we are sanctified. In other words, we're set apart and we grow. We know the Lord and then we grow in the Lord as we are now saved from sin's power. And finally, there will be one day with the saints that we heard Sybil read in Revelation 7. One day, we'll be glorified, fully saved from sin's presence in our lives. Therefore, we revisit these days each and every year because we have lots to celebrate in the kingdom of God. Amen? 
And so in today's passage in Revelation 7, the passage starts, after this I looked. Well, after what? So I invite you to turn with me in Revelation 7, because what we're going to see is a declaration of God's people in the heavenly host and why they declare what they declare. We're going to see the effects of living with such declaration. And then last, we'll see the results of living into the final results of living into that declaration of faith. The scene before us in Revelation 7, beginning in verse 9, is that there's innumerable multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. You ever felt like we're alone against the world at times in the Christian life? Jesus said, you know, the way is narrow, and few are they who follow it, right? It feels that way in this life, that, you know, we're in such a minority in our culture. If you think it's bad here, just go to Nigeria. Go to other Afghanistan. You know, our brothers and sisters there know what it's really like to be in a minority. But what John is being revealed to by the Holy Spirit in this vision is that one day it won't feel like we're alone. One day we'll be around the throne of Jesus and all nations will be represented there. All cultures will be represented. It will be beautiful. And look at where they are. It says that before the throne, before the Lamb. In other words, believers, we will be there one day. The mention of these white robes that, that we they wearing reminds us that of this reward of those who overcome. In chapter 19, verse 14, the armies of heaven are arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, and they're following Jesus into the battle. This is in keeping with the marshalling of the 12 tribes earlier in chapter 7. You see the 144,000. It's not 144,000 people. When you read Revelation, brothers and sisters, it's figurative, illustrative language. The palm branches that they hold in, in verse 9 recall to mind the palm branches of Palm Sunday. We're also reminiscent of the Feast of Booths, which God's people Israel celebrated their wilderness on the way to the Promised Land. This scene is those who have received their reward at the celebration of the triumph of Jesus and they're celebrating the way he's provided for them. John's been ushered into this grand vision that starts in Revelation chapter 4. And therefore, what are they doing? Well, the first thing they're doing is announcing a declaration. Verse 10. They give credit where credit is due, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Notice this declaration is not for all that they've done. It's what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. They state plainly that salvation belongs to God. And that means that salvation is not due to the right choices that they've made. It doesn't mean they've been great parents who got their kids to go to Ohio State. They've had a good business. That they've been successful. That they had great grass in their yard that they drove a nice car, that they made a happy family, all things which are fine, which are good. But you know the definition of idolatry, right? All right? 
anything which we take away from our lives, our lives will fall apart, is an idol. Right? And such is the suburban life. And this means that their salvation is not due to anything they've done. It's all to God. God saved them. So they praise him. And in verse 11 and 12, the heavenly hosts come in. And all the angels who were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. See, these elders are part of the heavenly hosts mentioned earlier in chapter 4, and they're grouped with all these redeemed humans around the throne. In chapter 4, this who's seated on the throne is called the Lion of Judah, and John looks up. He doesn't see a lion. You know what he sees? A lamb who's been slain, bloodied, and it's our Lord Jesus Christ. And so these heavenly hosts praise God for his work in saving these humans. They're praising God for saving us. And they ascribe seven things, blessing, glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might. So in verse 10, you look at the way humans praise God, and then the way the heavenly hosts praise God, and the heavenly hosts say, Amen, to God saving the humans. So they praise him. So that begs the question. This is our declaration that salvation belongs to God and all to him goes the glory. Who gets your praise in your day-to-day life? Are you someone who knows you deserve no credit for the salvation that you have? Or are you someone who stands before God and you expect to be commended for having made good choices, being generous, being a good person? Do you feel that you should be commended? Or deep down in your soul, you know that if you got what you deserved, you wouldn't be commended, you'd be condemned. This vision of John's is reminding us that salvation is all a gift of God to each and every one of us, secured to us through Jesus Christ. None of us is commendable to God. In chapter 6 of Revelation, verse 17, the question is is asked, who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? Sounds crazy, right? A Lamb with wrath? Jesus is gentle and lowly, right? But he's full of grace and truth. And the answer, who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? No one. And so the redeemed proclaim the salvation belongs to God, and the heavenly host answer back, Amen. So if you're wondering how this innumerable multitude stand before God declaring salvation, how is that ever possible? Knowing that no one is worthy to stand before the Lamb, we see an exchange between John and the interpreter in verse 13. Verse 13, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these? Clothed in white robes and from where have they come? John tells us his response. I said to him, sir, you know. 
And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This washing white in the blood of the Lamb is not a literal washing. They did not dip their robes into the blood of Jesus. It's a figurative expression how the blood of Jesus cleansed them. This is the church throughout the ages gathered around the throne that God has the privilege of seeing and giving to us to know what we have to look forward to. And by the way, this isn't everything we're going to do in heaven. We're not going to say over and over, salvation belongs to our God. Oh, we'll probably say it a lot. All right, but we're in the presence of God. We will be worshiping, and we'll be asking like they're asking, how long, Lord, when do we get this new body you promised us? Because to be alive is good, right? We like it. Flesh and bone, God created us good. But in the presence of God, a little hint of it is that we'll be worshiping him. Like these who are washed in the blood because they fully trusted Jesus trusted in Jesus. In other words, they didn't just believe in Jesus. That's, that's the Western view, which is intellectual assent. Yes, that's part of it, but it's trusting in Jesus, and it's knowing God, growing in Christ, and serving him in his church. They got it. And so that's the declaration, and that's who is proclaiming it. Well, let's look at the effects it says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. In other words, in this life, we will have tribulation. Now, this is a very debatable phrase in in-house Christian debate. Dispensationalist interpreters understand the great tribulation to refer to Daniel's 70th week, meaning the final seven years of human history. We hold, and covenant theology holds, the 70th week is the whole period of time between Christ's ascension and his second coming. You with me? Uh, when I arrived at St. Barnabas, I noticed in our library there was a whole slew of left-behind series books. It was the dispensationalist view. And... I find it damaging to some people. And so I got rid of them quietly. Didn't even tell you. And you didn't even know they were gone. No, my friends, I believe this, and, and Anglican Christians believe this because we believe the New Testament indicates that with the resurrection, the last days began. Jesus said in John 55, 25, that the time is coming and is now here. Acts 2, 16 and 17, Peter says the prophecy of Joel concerning the last days has come to pass. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, that Christians are those on whom the end of the ages has come. So the last days are here. It's been inaugurated. In the final period of human history, Daniel's 70th week is the whole period between the ascension and the return of Jesus. This also means that the whole period of time between the ascension and the return of Jesus is a time of tribulation. Granted, 
Some areas of the world have more tribulation than we have. But we all have trials in our lives. Jesus said in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation. Paul says to the church in Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Revelation 1, 9, John told the churches that he was their brother and partner in the tribulation. And Jesus said to the church in Smyrna in Revelation 2, 9, I know your tribulations. Then he told the church in Smyrna that you'll have tribulation. So you might be thinking, if you're from that more dispensationalist background, well, this is a great tribulation, Gene. And I will grant you that this is also seen in Matthew 24, 21. And also in Revelation 7, 14, reflecting Daniel 12, 1, which says, There shall be a time of tribulation such as not been from the time a nation came on the earth until that time. But the phrase great tribulation does not exclusively refer to a final period of difficulty. Jesus threatens to throw those in the church in Thyatira who commit adultery into the great tribulation. This means that he threatened people alive in John day, John's days with the great tribulation. So it seems that the whole period of church history between Jesus' ascension and the period of his return is a time of tribulation. Romans calls this a time of tribulation and birth pangs. And right before the time of our Lord's return, it seems, it does seem that there'll be an intense period of persecution, but also revival before he returns. But I think it's a mistake to expect a literal final seven years. I think if we do that, we miss all that the Lord has for us in our day. So I'm arguing that the Great Tribulation is that whole period between Jesus' ascension and return. And this is the period of the messianic woes. And that the innumerable multitude, the 144,000 all around the throne, are believers in Jesus. Worshiping God, proclaiming salvation belongs to our God, and they've been sealed, protected. So rather than a period of a final seven-year history, I think it's more likely John means it's you, it's me, and it's those saints who have gone before us. Thus, what John sees and recounts in Revelation is meant to encourage the churches to whom he writes because they are facing tribulation. And he tells them that God seals his servants to preserve them through the tribulation. God makes it so that though they are killed, they will overcome because they're simply trusting in Jesus Christ and his work. You are loved with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31.3. And underneath are the everlasting arms, Deuteronomy 33.27. A dear Saint Elizabeth Elliot started her radio program with those two scriptures to remind us of the truth of God's love. So what are you trusting? Are you trusting your ability to stand before God or are you trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus to clothe you white with the blood of the Lamb? 
Are you trusting your ability to keep yourself from falling away? Or are you trusting in the God who seals his servants? The angelic elder continues to describe the results of being sealed. This is what we have, brothers and sisters. Verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter him with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is a glorious catalog of biblical promises for those who trust in Jesus Christ, who receive everything that God has promised them, and more. More than we can even ask or think. Just as Bob Finley, who has gone before us. Tom and Mary Miller, who've gone before us. So what threatens you? What are you concerned about right now? The loss of a job? Finding a new job? The betrayal in a relationship? Children making unwise choices? Inflation? Struggling economy? The medical situation? Increasing crime rates, the temptations of the world. The whole point that John is trying to make in the, his revelation is for us to see God in his glory, and this glory is on display as God shows his justice and mercy. The awesome glory of God in mercy is what we see in chapter 7. He seals the saints, and the saints praise him. So do you realize this All Saints Eve, all that God has done, and why this matters? This means that you are invincible until the day he takes you home. Live like it. Your faith is unassailable, not because of the strength of your faith, but because salvation belongs to God. Your faith is unassailable because God has sealed his people. And as Jesus says in John 10, 29, my father is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand as they're gathered around the throne. Salvation belongs to God. It is said that a group of American botanists went to Switzerland in the early 20th century and they went on an expedition to find some flora and fauna that botanists look for. And they're looking for all kinds of varieties of flowers in the Swiss Alps. So they're on top of this grand crevice, and they look down in binoculars into this ravine, and they see some flowers that they've never seen before, and they discovered. But it's a pretty deep crevice. So they look at one of the Swiss boys that are helping them carry their stuff, and they ask this kid, who's about 12, to scale down and pick that flower so that we can study it. All right? Now, he lived high up in the mountains of Switzerland. He was used to this type of thing. He says, okay, I'll go. Wait a second. So he walks up about 150 yards to a little shanty house, beautiful Swiss house, you know. And out comes a guy who's about middle-aged man. He comes down and he says, all right, 
I'll go down and get that flower for you on one condition. He holds the rope because he's my dad. That's the security times 100 that we have in Christ. That God's got us. He will hold us no matter what. This is the age we're called to live in. Salvation belongs to our God. Even in the midst of our tribulation, we've been sealed. Let us live for him because of the gift he's given us, my friends. Just as Tom and Mary Miller, Bob Finley, Thomas Kramer. I could go on and on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful once again for this day and for this season of the year where we celebrate the friends who have encouraged us, both living and those who have gone into your presence, who are right now around the throne, gathered in white robes and palm branches, proclaiming salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb of God. And the heavenly hosts say, Amen. Blessing and glory and honor and wisdom and thanks and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And Lord, may we live into that reality and recognize that we are invincible until you call us home. Bold confidence because of the grace and mercy that's shown to us in Jesus Christ. May we live that way, Lord. And remember that one day you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.